The Fake Show Podcast welcomes our newest sponsor, Expand Laces. Never tie your shoelaces again with the original no-tie system, now in 40 colors. Go to expandlaces.com. That's X-P-A-N-D. The Fake Show is also sponsored by Hutchison & Stefan, The Craft House Brewery, The Tone Factory Recording Studios, Moonshot.com, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. My guest on the show is Sean Cassidy, who most people know as the half-brother of David Cassidy, and he had a few hits of his own, including this song, Hey Dini, and a hit TV show called The Hardy Boys. But unlike his brother David, Sean decided he had a passion for working in television and started writing scripts to the point where he is now an executive producer on such shows as Blue Bloods and New Amsterdam. He is also professional Forming a few dates here and there. Please welcome from Los Angeles, Sean Cassidy. Sean, thank you for joining me. I, you know, it's funny. I just happened to run across a clip of you and David on Jimmy Kimmel's shows from a few years ago. You were promoting Ruby and the Rockets, which, by the way, I always liked. Oh, and, thank you. Yeah, and you talked about this weird experience hanging out with Keith Moon of The Who when you were just a teenager. Do you recall much about that? Can you tell me about that? I remember it very well. Well, it's uh, imprinted forever on my brain. <laughs> I had been, um, I was sort of a wild kid. And, you know, before I started making records of my own, I was in a band that was playing at a lot of clubs on Sunset Boulevard when I really had no business being in clubs. I was probably 15. Yeah. And I ended up hanging out at this one particular club that's still there called the Rainbow, Rainbow Bar yeah. and Grill, which is kind of infamous. And one night I was there and I had a couple of girlfriends with me and I'm about 15 or 16, maybe Probably not 16, because I didn't have a driver's license. So 15, and I ended up striking up a conversation with Keith Moon, who I'm a huge fan of. I'm a huge Who fan. And, right. Uh, in short order, he invites me and my two girlfriends back to his house, and we go down to the parking lot. He has a limousine waiting. He opens the door graciously. The two ladies get in the car, and then he slams the door, and the car takes off without us in it. <laughs> and I said, uh, Mr. Moon, you know... Uh, we're not in the car. He said, oh, yeah, uh, well, you have a car, don't you? Said, um, no, actually, I don't have a driver's license. Um, oh, so I ended up walking him home to my parents' house. We lived about a mile away. And he's had quite a few drinks, and I'm not quite sure he knows where he's going or who he's with, but he ends up sleeping on the couch in my room. Now, wait a minute. Your your parents, Shirley Jones and... Jack Cassidy, who were, Jack Cassidy. Cassidy, who were away a lot. Yes, yeah, so I was kind of raised by wolves, and I love my uh. mom. And she's awesome, but, you know, we kind of had to fend for ourselves. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm happy to report I you know I made it but here but here I am but Keith Moon's asleep on my couch and I'm calling all my friends going you never believe who's sleeping over it's Keith Moon uh, and the next day he woke up and he looked around and he recognized a photograph of my mother and it turns out he was a big fan of hers from Oklahoma and Carousel <laughs> we ended up playing air hockey for a few hours and he went home and it was a lovely time and I'll never forget it and I had a lot of kind of crazy experiences like that I. I got to meet a lot of people later on when I started making records of my own who had been heroes of mine when I was a really young kid, you know, so it's kind of sweet. Yeah, and I mean, this is before the days of taking selfies and doing stuff like that. Do you have any photographic uh, evidence of this event with Keith Moon? I don't. I, uh, oh. <laughs> I sang a background on his solo album. He invited me down to the studio, and a couple of my friends and I sang on the record, and that was one of my first recordings, I think, but I'm not listed on the album or anything. 
but uh, it was sort of an amazing experience. I later got to know Pete Townsend pretty well, too, because when David and I were doing, my brother David and I were doing a musical on Broadway called Blood Brothers, right. he was uh, producing Tommy, the musical on Broadway, and he invariably be at Sardi's or whatever, you know, place, after hang place, and um, he was great, too. I don't know if you saw The Who just posted a new song that they were playing for the first time in a club that they'll be playing when they head out on the road again. It's a song that Simon Townsend wrote, but that Roger and, and Pete and the rest of the band will be performing. Oh, great. I do a Who song in my show, actually. Um, my last album, which was produced by Todd Rundgren, we recorded a song called So Sad About Us, which is an old Who song sort of a power pop song and uh, one of my favorite songs. I very vividly remember, and I don't even know if I have it anymore because my vinyl got so worn out, but the album, I think it was around 1980, Wasp, that was produced by Rundgren. And and the backing band was his band Utopia, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I liked it, but did your fans at the time, could they connect with it? Because you were doing stuff like Bowie and Ian Hunter, which is definitely a turn for you. Well, it was a turn for me in terms of their perception of me, for sure, but it was not a turn for me in terms of what I'd been playing five years earlier or what was in my record collection. But I do think it was sort of a hard right suddenly from what I've been doing. Most of the records have been very pop-oriented. and it, uh, The fans did not embrace the record at the time, although in the passage of time, it seems to have been embraced by a lot of people. And we do a couple songs from that album again in the show. And I, I think... Uh, with the test of time and with people getting older, a lot of that stuff has been more accepted. You had hit singles, there's no doubt about that, but was that satisfying for you or did you have an eye for something a little deeper? Well, I had an eye for something richer artistically beyond music even. I mean, my career has primarily been that of a storyteller. I've written and produced television for 25 years. But yeah. what I realized, and one of the reasons, you know, my last concert was at the Astrodome in 1980 for 55,000 people until a few months ago. I'd, had, I'd never done a live show since then. And that was great. And that whole period of my life was like this insane rocket ship that was really fun and surreal. And it, it took me, you know, five or 10 years to kind of recover from it. And after having had a really successful and gratifying career behind the scenes as a writer producer, I kind of feel like going out and reclaiming the music that was such an important part of my youth and bringing stories along that tie to those songs and, and, and new stories related to the life I've lived and the storytelling aspect of my life, which I realized really was an important part of my early songwriting. Most of the songs I wrote were kind of story-driven songs. So the whole thing has a kind of a nice full circle feeling to it for me, and it seems to have that feeling to the audience as well. Great. Not too long ago, you were you were out playing again for the first time, and, and I read that you had paid a little bit of a tribute to your brother David uh, by performing a couple of Partridge Family songs. The fans must have really loved that, as well as you. Uh, they seem to. It's, it's quite emotional uh, for me and for them. And you know, uh, David was a seminal figure in my life. I mean, he's my brother, my half-brother, but in terms of impact, I mean, he's kind of irreplaceable. I mean, I was a young kid when the Partridge family happened. I'd seen the success of my parents and kind of lived with that. But when your own brother, the kid who, you know, kind of shares your room on the weekend is suddenly the biggest star in the world, it's a big deal. And it's a hard adjustment. And when I became successful, I kind of understood more of what he'd gone through, although we had very different experiences. I mean, on the surface, it was similar, but how we dealt with it, I think, was different. And for me, once it happened, I was already eager to move on from it. And not that I 
disliked it or not that I didn't uh, even honor the experience and honor the experience of these young kids, but I, I did want to do something more. And, and writing proved my ticket to that. Uh, David ended up doing it his whole career in some form, and he, I think, was frustrated by his inability at times, not all the time, but at times to move beyond it. Yeah, I know that when he was younger and still doing the Partridge Family that he wanted to do, I mean, he was a fan of Hendrix and, and Led Zeppelin and all that stuff, but the industry just simply wouldn't allow him to do that. Well, he didn't sign up to play Jimi Hendrix. He signed up to play Keith Partridge and... You know, right. at, a, at a certain point, you got to play the hand you're dealt, and he played it well and played it very successfully. Um, but I think, like any any artist, doesn't want to be typecast. Any artist doesn't want to be told you're a this. And the ability to continue to move on and change and try new things, and you know, I think again, when people come to my show, there a lot of them may be coming for an experience or, or, or the the feeling that they may have had a long time ago, but I think they'll leave going, oh, I have that feeling and I have a new feeling too. I, I've taken something new and actually current away. One of the challenges I, I thought I would face, which I haven't, which I'm thrilled about, is that, you know, I didn't want people thinking it's just a nostalgia show, and it hasn't been that at all. That's great. And I mean, you worked with David on Ruby and the Rockets and Blood Brothers. What was your relationship like, your working relationship, uh, at the same time, your your personal relationship? It was, it was interesting because... You know, on Ruby, I was his producer. I was technically his boss. Yeah. That was interesting. And <laughs> I said to him before we started, and my, by the way, my brother Patrick was in the show too. And my youngest brother, Ryan, uh, was a set dresser on the show. So we were all working together. It was the first time and only time we've all worked together. And I said to all of them early on that we are brothers first, but in this work situation, the hierarchy needs to kind of be respected and to his credit, David did. And I brought on another wonderful writer-producer by the name of Marsh McCall, who had run a lot of comedy shows, because my background was primarily drama. And he was a guy who was great at playing middleman, if a middleman was necessary, if I had to you know, say something to David that maybe David didn't want to hear, or to Patrick, or to Ryan. Uh, and uh, it's one of my favorite experiences of my whole life, beyond my career, my life. Yeah, for sure. It was a quality show. I, I, I really did enjoy that. And, you know, the Hardy Boys, when you were on that show, did you, at that point, kind of have an eye on doing things behind the scenes? 100%. It's where it happened. Yeah. Almost like in the second or third show, I'm working on this television series and I'm looking around going, there's all these other fantastic creative jobs that are interesting to me. The lighting and the, and the cinematography and screenwriting, script writing. The writer's room was like going into a magician's den. I wanted to be there and watch how that magic was made and learn. And I loved acting. I still like acting, but acting is an interpretive art, whereas writing, for me anyway, really does feel like magic. And I used to be a magician, so I, I have a respect <laughs> for magicians. My favorite day on a set is, is the first day of work where 300 people have a job because six months ago I had some weird dream or read a newspaper article we just had an idea that manifested into a script and into a production. It's just an incredibly gratifying feeling. Oh, yeah, and I can feel your passion about it, too. I, I, it was really kind of a pleasant surprise when I started seeing your name attached to shows like you know, as an executive producer, like Invasion, which I thought was a very cool series. Also, Blue Bloods, of course, were very popular. And most recently, New Amsterdam. So how did the executive producer gig happen for you? Well, I kind of wrote my way into it. I mean, I, I sold my first pilot script, man, 
25 years ago, it was a show called American Gothic, which got on the air on CBS. It was kind of a cult hit, and it kind of opened all of these doors for me. And I am now the consulting producer on New Amsterdam. I didn't create the show. A very good friend of mine, David Schulner, did. But David and I had run uh, a series together called Emerald City. And when New Amsterdam uh, was picked up, he asked if I join it and help him write it and work on it uh, with this brilliant team of writers. And the show's a huge hit. So just got picked up for three more years on uh, on NBC. So oh, we're going to be on for a while. Actually, makes you feel good about being in a hospital, which is <laughs> what is that building that doubles as the hospital? It's huge. Whatever that it's set actually is, actually Bellevue Hospital in New York, which is the largest public hospital in the country. Wow. Yeah. That's where we shoot a lot of it. Is this going to be a tour that you're on at the moment or, or just a few shows here and there? It's funny. I don't know what to call it. People say, hey, you're touring again. And I'm like, sort of. <laughs> I mean, I'm going out on a weekend here and a weekend there, which ironically is kind of how I did it back in the day. Because when I was a kid, I was working on the Hardy Boys. Later, I had a series called Breaking Away. And I'd be been doing yeah. a show in Chicago or New York or wherever I would go. And then I'd go back to work. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm in an office four days a week in Los Angeles, working on New Amsterdam, and I'm writing a movie now as well, and I'm flying out on the weekend with a fantastic band, and then I'll be playing another place next month, and so I'll probably do, you know, maybe 20 shows tops this year, um, but I don't know how many I'll do consecutively. Yeah, I know, you're very busy. What's next on TV for you? New Amsterdam, is that what's keeping you busy at the moment? It is. Then? Uh, an episode I wrote is on a week from Tuesday that kind of takes on the opioid crisis head-on, and it's a pretty powerful episode very emotional episode and uh, sadly very timely. Sean, really great talking to you. I, I appreciate the time and good luck with uh, the rest of whatever is happening musically and also on New Amsterdam. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me here and uh, I look forward to seeing everyone. That story with Keith Moon is incredible and he had many along the way and I love the fact that Sean Cassidy's doing music again, not because he has to, but because he wants to and he's very busy of course in television. That finishes off this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you back here next time. Listen to The Fake Show on SoundCloud and get alerts when there are new episodes.